as this pandemic evolved, it became clear to me that it was just a very logical swerve to bring the coronavirus to my students. I thought there's really nothing more important than this and for their lives right now and for them to understand the circumstances that we're facing. Hi, and welcome to Conversations Beneath the Cupola, a Gettysburg College podcast. I'm Bob Uliano, president of the college and your host. If you've tuned into recent episodes of this podcast, you know that we've been trying to make sense of the significant changes the pandemic has brought to the way we live and work. We've benefited from the expertise of members of the Gettysburg College faculty who have offered thoughts about the political, economic, health-related, and social impact of the outbreak. Today, we are joined by Steve James, a 1980 Gettysburg graduate and a professor of biology at the college. Steve is a molecular biologist and a geneticist, and he will use this background to help us take a closer look at the biology and genetics of COVID-19, its origins, how properties of the virus are affecting the development of a vaccine and other related topics. So Steve, I understand that when the coronavirus, um, uh, the outbreak really became more widespread, you completely revised a course that you were teaching. Say a word or two about that. Uh, what did you change? Why did you change it? And how was it received by the students? So thank you, Bob. Thanks for inviting me today. I am teaching a course called Bi uh, Biological Basis of Disease for Non-Majors. And uh, along with Betty Furster, who is also teaching the course, we have 160 students total in the course. It's a course that I've been teaching for a long time. It's driven by the afflictions and conditions that uh, biologically affect humanity. And hopefully, are, I, I try to present uh, material that is relevant to students. So. Um, it's designed to help students who are not scientists to understand the biology of disease. Um, in this case, the timing was really serendipitous. We had been covering uh, infectious diseases and had just finished uh, talking about some viruses before spring break. And as this pandemic evolved, it became clear to me that it was just a very logical swerve to bring the coronavirus to my students I thought there's really nothing more important than this and for their lives right now and for them to understand the circumstances that we're facing. That's fascinating. I assume your students are always interested in your course, but did their engagement heighten as the pandemic became um, more obvious to them? It affected them directly, obviously, by virtue of the decisions we made as a college and the experiences they've been having outside of uh, uh, outside of the college as well. Did you see a palpable change in their engagement with the material? Yes. Uh, um, averages on quizzes and exams went up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, I've received a lot of feedback from students thanking me for bringing this to them. They appreciate knowing more about the disease and having a a firm understanding of where it came from, what it is, and what it can do. It's um, fascinating. I've now spoken with members of the um, uh, philosophy department and the religious studies department, and it will not surprise you, Steve, that they both have said that their students engaged in a different way with the material, because for both in both areas, um, different sorts of questions were being raised, and the uh, underlying uh, disciplinary tools that the students were getting, whether in religion or 
uh, philosophy, but we're helping them to make sense of a situation that was largely, again, not decipherable to them because they've not seen anything like it. So um, I'm not surprised to hear that your students have engaged in a different way. And it's part of the charm of the curriculum, I think, in that our students are finding a number of the things that we teach them as means, again, of making sense of something that is hard for all of us to sort of comprehend. So let's start at a basic level, if you would, and that is we all read a lot about what the coronavirus is, but I suspect we don't actually know what it is. So what is it, how is it distinguished from other viruses, and how is COVID-19 distinguished from other coronaviruses? Most people will know that viruses are inanimate particles um, with a protein shell that surrounds genetic material. And some viruses have an additional membrane surrounding that protein shell. And that is true of uh, what we'll call SARS-CoV-2, which is the name of the virus. The disease is called COVID-19. Um, so most people will know also that viruses cannot survive on their own. They can't make more viruses by themselves. So they need the machinery of a living cell in order to replicate and assemble more virus copies. So some viruses have DNA as genetic material, um, like all of us do. Uh, and these include things like adenoviruses that cause upper respiratory infections and pox viruses like chicken pox. Um, but many viruses have a genetic cousin of DNA as their genetic material called RNA or ribonucleic acid. So for example, influenza is an example of an RNA virus. So the three that are uh, of serious concern are the SARS virus, which uh, emerged in Asia in 2003 um, with about a 10% fatality rate. However, in patients greater than 60 years of age, it was over 50%. So it was a very, very lethal virus. Um, we now call it SARS-CoV-1 to distinguish it from the current SARS-CoV-2 uh, that emerged, um, the, the second deadly coronavirus that emerged in 2012 in Saudi Arabia, only caused about 2,000 cases, but uh, has a very high death rate as well, over 30%. And now we have SARS-CoV-2, which is the causative agent of the COVID-19 illness, um, which depending upon region of the world and the way uh, cases are reported, uh, the death rate from this virus is lower or about as low as uh, the two other lethal ones um, with a rate of between 0.5% and 15%, depending upon, uh, uh, again, reporting conditions, where in the world the virus is occurring, et cetera. So, so Steve, maybe you can't answer this, but those other two um, examples that you gave did not turn into quite the same global pandemic that this has. What is the reason that, if you if you know, why this has proven to be much more widespread, if a little less uh, fatal as a statistical matter? Then right, and that that's a that's a super question, um, and uh, it, it should we can really help to distinguish in this case. So. All viruses have to dock with the target cell that they're going to infect through uh, a physical lock and key process in which a protein on the virus's surface 
locks onto a protein on the surface of the host cell that it will infect. And then once locked on, it can be drawn into the cell to begin an infection. Um, in the case of SARS-CoV-2, and in the case of, of the original SARS, that red spike protein that everyone is so familiar with on the surface of the coronavirus binds tightly with a protein on airway cells called the ACE2 receptor protein, or angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 receptor, um, which incidentally, this receptor protein is also found in the lungs, arteries, heart, kidneys, small intestine, and plays a central role in regulating blood pressure. And some people will have heard about this, I'm sure. So why is SARS-CoV-2 uh, so much more infectious, so much more transmissible, such that it has caused a pandemic, uh, whereas SARS and MERS uh, were relatively small localized outbreaks? Um, first, the prevalent strains of SARS-CoV-2 attach 10 to 20 fold more tightly with much with 10 to 20 fold higher affinity to that ACE2 protein than does SARS-CoV-1. So that makes it easier, much easier for the virus to gain entry to infect cells. And that's just a byproduct of the biology. There's, there's yes, it is what it is. Okay. Unlike some coronaviruses that attach to ACE2, the spike protein on this coronavirus contains a special region that allows that spike protein to be cut in half by a human enzyme that's present in our airways after uh, the coronavirus has attached or locked onto the ACE2 protein on the host cell. So this keeps the cutting it in half, keeps the virus particle attached to the cell surface, but cutting it with this enzyme allows it to gain entry into the cells, to be taken into the cells much more efficiently. That's fascinating. Yeah, and the, the, other, the other point I would make has to do with where these ACE2 receptors are located. So when a flu virus uh, infects or a common cold virus infects, it is capable of infecting airway cells in the upper respiratory tract. So we think of these flu and colds as upper respiratory viruses, but the ACE2 receptors also found deep down in the lower part of the lungs, and especially on the cells we call, or the, the air sacs we call alveoli. And these are clusters of cells that form air sacs where gas exchange occurs, where oxygen can enter the bloodstream and where carbon dioxide can leave the bloodstream. And so in addition to its enhanced affinity for uh, the ACE2 receptor, this coronavirus is capable infect of infecting deep in the lungs, so a lower respiratory infection. So you may have answered my question then, my next question, which was going to be, um, what makes what's the biological mechanism by which this is more lethal? And is it exactly what you just said, that unlike other forms of um, uh, the coronavirus, this one by, by blocking that gas exchange presents a greater risk to the uh, health of the, of the subject? Right, so it, uh, it often causes an ammonia, and so what's happening it is sort of a three-stage process in which the virus infects and spreads through the lungs. 
and starts to damage and kill cells of the lungs because as a virus reproduces and replicates inside a host cell, the host cell is typically doomed. Um, that brings about an immune response. The immune system reacts and says, we've got a problem here. Let's start mopping up these virally infected cells. And then what happens is that, um, really interesting in the case of this coronavirus, it not only can infect uh, airway cells containing the ACE2 receptor, but it can also infect some of the cells, some of these um, soldiers of the immune system, these soldier cells of the immune system that are there to knock out the infection and mop things up, they can actually infect those cells and replicate inside of our immune cells, which does two things. It destroys some of the cells in the immune system that are designed to try and uh, mitigate the infection. And when those immune system cells are attacked by the virus, those immune system cells release chemicals called cytokines which promote inflammation, which bring, which, which cause a number of things, one of which is to make uh, capillaries, that is the small blood vessels, leaky, so that fluid leaks out of the circulatory system into the air spaces in the lungs and fills the lungs with fluids. And this is part of what we call a cytokine storm, mm. when the immune system overreacts or reacts because it itself is being attacked by the coronavirus and it releases large, large amounts of these pro-inflammatory signaling molecules we call cytokines, which then loosen blood vessels and allow fluid to leak into the lungs and cause a more severe pneumonia, which, which is uh, characteristic of the final stage of the disease and people who, are, who succumb to the disease. So that's all. That's very helpful. Uh, so let's move back a little bit in time. Um, and when the virus first manifested itself in China, should we have known then? I mean, you've obviously, with the benefit of now studying the virus, we understand that it is a very efficient machine. Um, should we have understood immediately the global risk that this presented? Um, and did we, as a result, fail to respond adequately, given what we should have known from the first case on? Right. So um, I thought about this, and my answer would kind of be a yes and a no. So yes, the Chinese government was slow to react initially. And from my reading, it seems that they hid, or at least the local officials in Wuhan hid or dismissed the threat initially. And, that, and, in, and in that sense, we lost precious time. Uh, so that by the time China imposed those strict lockdowns, the virus had already boarded airplanes and had disseminated widely across the world. And had the local officials uh, reacted more aggressively sooner, then I think that the spread of this disease could have been slowed considerably. Whether it could have been slowed sufficiently, I don't know. That makes a lot of sense. Um, right now, a lot of people have on their mind the question of the future, of course, and a belief that an important 
way in which we're going to respond to this um, is through a vaccine. Right. Uh, what is your sense about um, um, the, should we anticipate that there can be an efficacious vaccine at some point? Um, and what do you have the sense of, from your perspective of where we are on that timeline to the extent that you have uh, any information about that? Right. So I've been trying to follow some of this, as have many people. So my understanding is that there, there are as many as about 90 vaccine trials underway across the world right now, um, maybe as many as 30 or 40 or 50 different approaches being taken. Um, and we're advancing this at a pace that, that the world has never seen before, largely because there's never been a better research infrastructure in the world, a more advanced uh, technology that's permitting you know, this uh, very rapid uh, attack on the problem. There are a few that have risen to the surface at this point as possibly going forward. Britain is fast tracking what we call a recombinant vaccine that ha they have tested in monkeys and they're now proceeding to human trials. So this is an interesting um, way of, there are a couple of interesting new technologies. So this is a case where they've taken uh, an adenovirus, which causes common upper respiratory infections, they've crippled it so that it can't um, that it can't reproduce itself inside cells. It can get into cells, but it can't reproduce. And they've attached the gene for the spike protein in the coronavirus in the genome of this adenovirus, so that what happens is uh, the adenovirus gets into or, or simply you, you put this adenovirus into, uh, injected into an individual and the immune system sees the spike protein on the surface of this harmless adenovirus and uh, creates antibodies against um, the spike protein. And that's shown, uh, uh, that's shown some promise in monkeys, so they're moving to human trials. The <laughs> other that's really interesting, I think, is this Moderna approach. This is a company in the U.S. that was just given almost half a billion dollars by the U.S. government to keep developing what are known as mRNA vaccines or messenger RNA vaccines. And these are vaccines in which you literally inject RNA that encodes a viral protein. So in this case, uh, Moderna is injecting into muscle uh, tissue in people or in animals um, 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 a piece of RNA, but this RNA isn't the whole genome of the coronavirus. It just contains the spike protein gene uh, with the idea that uh, that gene will be expressed in um, certain kinds of cells that take up the RNA, that they will display that spike protein on their surfaces. So they're not virus particles, they're human cells that are displaying this spike protein on their surface, and that would be recognized as a foreign uh, invader by the immune system and would raise an immune response. This is a technique that's never been used before to create a viable antibody, so we don't know if it's going to work. But if it does work, um, it would in, in eliminate the need to raise um, traditional vaccines using chicken eggs, and um, it would speed the process greatly. I've heard about this. I hadn't understood that was the reason for its attractiveness. That's fascinating. You know, before um, all of this 
happened, I was scheduled to go to Philadelphia and I was going to, as part of my introduction to the alumni community particularly, and I was gonna talk about the importance of science in that setting. And one of the things, and we're at a moment in time in society where at least there's some skepticism about the scientific method, but as you were explaining your, your prior answer about how the vaccine is gonna work and the really innovative techniques that people are using, it is yet a reminder of the importance of science and the importance of the scientific method and the research and the facts and how we our lives are, are influenced by the work that people are doing in research universities and in, in an industry. Just a digression, but it's a, a plug for the importance of science. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Bob, yeah. Uh, last question for me, and that is, um, I'm asking everybody this, and you can either answer this as a someone who studies biology or as a citizen of the world. Yeah. What do you see as the lasting impacts, if any, of this virus and the way we live, the way we work, uh, the way we organize ourselves as a society? I'm thinking non-scientifically uh, with respect to this answer. So you can look at this virus and say, well, is this virus somewhat of an equalizer in the sense that no one is potentially spared, right? None, none of us prior to this pandemic were immune. Um, it's a super transmissible virus. In some people, it has devastating effects. Um, that said, in the US at least, so it's very clear now that social and economic factors, poverty and so forth, are a major driving factor that determines who of us is gonna get hit hardest, who of us is at higher risk, who is better shielded first from contracting the virus, and then once sickened, who is more likely to, likely to recover and who is more likely to die. Um, and so I think it is laying bare the social and ec economic inequalities that exist in our society. And my hope is that somehow this pandemic, and I don't know how yet, I'm not the, I'm not the political scientist but, um, or the, the sociologist, but I'm hoping that it may spur some kind of real change that substantively addresses income inequality, institutional biases, especially institutional racism, and brings about a society with better safety nets and better opportunities for, for everyone and better attention to um, some of these diseases of civilization that I talked about it early on that have a much more devastating impact on some sectors of our society than others. Well, that is a wonderful way to end this, um, end this conversation with a call to action that, as you say, isn't just about the biology, but about what it is that brings us together as a society. And I think you will be hardened to know that as I've talked to Amy Daly and Char Weiss and Bruce Larson, also of our faculty, and asked them this question, their answers, was, well, their answers were a lot like yours, which is um, this has revealed um, inequalities in the system that warrant attention and perhaps will be a spur to it. Um, so with that, Steve, thank you. Thank you for shedding light on um, the mechanics of this disease. Um, I think uh, our listeners will be better off for it. So I appreciate your time with me today. Thank you very much, Bob. It's been, been a pleasure. Let me conclude with a slice of life from Gettysburg College. 
As we record this, we are in the first few days of finals and the semester is rapidly coming to a close. It has been so inspiring for me to see the way our entire community has responded to this most unusual academic semester. From students to faculty, the resilience and perseverance throughout the semester has been worthy of note. Right about now, we would normally be on campus and see students flocking to Musselman to get in that last bit of studying. They probably should have done early in the semester, but they're certainly trying to get done now. Um, they're not obviously on our campus right now as we engage in our remote learning, but the spirit that the library brings to bear on what it does for our students is very much tangible. Musselman has done so many different things. For example, from April 27th through May 1st, they hosted a spirit week where each day of the week there was a different theme. It could have been silly socks, Hogwarts house colors, superheroes, throwback Thursday, and other things of school spirit. They've had a virtual research help desk. They've also hosted lattes with a librarian where students could sign up for a time slot and receive one-on-one -on -one research help on their project and paper. Bravo, Musselman. Good luck to our students as they wrap up the semester. We're looking forward to having you back on campus soon. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this conversation and want to be notified of future episodes, please subscribe to Conversations Beneath the Cupola by visiting gettysburg.edu or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a topic or suggestion for a future podcast, please email news at gettysburg.edu. Thank you, and until next time.